Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming, host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic They make me feel polished and modern, and the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin, and so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands, and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers, and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z-ZIBBY20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white, open, long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Morning America. Check it out, Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, this is Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, And I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time To, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time To Write, a new publication on Medium. And we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is ZibbyOwens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. 
Amy Koppelman is the author of A Mouthful of Air. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania and got her MFA in fiction from Columbia University. She is the author of the critically acclaimed novels, A Mouthful of Air, which I am going to talk to her about in this Instagram Live, I Smile Back and Hesitation Wounds. She co-adapted I Smile Back for the screen, which starred Sarah Silverman and premiered at the 2015 Sundance, Toronto, and Deauville Film Festivals to high acclaim. A Mouthful of Air is coming out in October as a movie with Amanda Seyfried starring, and we talk all about that. Anyway, we did this as an Instagram Live, and I hope you enjoy our discussion. I know I did. All right. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, also on Instagram Live today, to discuss A Mouthful of Air, your beautiful, sort of haunting and dark, but thought-provoking novel. Thank you. You're my, you're my first interview. Really? Yes. The, the novel originally came out, I guess, like 18 years ago or almost 18 years ago. And I'm really lucky because $2 Radio is republishing it. And I think people understand it more now and understand that it's a real thing. At the time, you know, people never used the word postpartum depression. And I didn't even know that thing, you know, that it existed until after... I wrote the novel and there was one scene and I was like, oh! and I was like, can you even, can a mother even do this? And I didn't Google it. I went to ask Jeeves because there wasn't oh, even Google. Ask Jeeves. Yeah. And I, and cause I didn't know if it was physically even possible to, uh, obviously I don't want to ruin the novel, but to hurt your child in any way. And I was trying to figure that out. I didn't even know, like, of course, if you think about the Bible, of course, of course it is, but at the time, I didn't know. So I was, I'm glad. I think people understand now that the things I was trying to talk more about, you know, the, the, the mixed feelings that you can have at different times, the confusion, the fears, and how so much of your own childhood trauma comes up when you have children, how you're kind of forced to re- recognize it. So you're my first interview after 18 years. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm (laughs) honored. Thank you so much. Wait, so then how did this become a movie now? And tell me about the movie and how how is this all happening now? Well, I just keep doing my own thing. I just keep (laughs) writing about, I I never know what I'm setting out to write. So I just write about an emotion that I'm feeling in a mouthful of air. I remember I knew I was writing about shame. And, you know, the shame, actual shame that we have for the things that we did wrong and the shame that people put on us and then what we allow for ourselves within the confines of that shame, if that makes sense. Speaking English is not my strong suit. That's why I sit alone and and write because I can retype the sentences for clarity. But so I think in retrospect, after nearly 20 years of, of, of 20 years being a writer, I think in this book, I was writing through the pain of what if I didn't get the help that I needed. And my second book, which was also published by the great $2 radio, I Smile Back, I wrote the screenplay for that. It stars Sarah Silverman. And I think that was about, you know, what if I worked so hard to build this happy little family and inside of me, you know, were demons that were going to inherited that I was going to, you know, destroy it all. And in my last book, Hesitation Wounds, it was about giving myself 
permission, I guess, to be happy, that I'm not such a bad person. So it all circled back to the shame. And I never thought out of any of the balls that I have in the air, you know, you always have to keep a lot of balls in the air because it's just rejection after rejection after rejection. So it's short story, novel, screenplay, you know, because I bet that that this would be the thing because this is such a hard subject. And I wrote Amanda Seyfried and I met with her and I said, you know, would you read this book? And she read the book and then I wrote the screenplay for it. And that all sounds very like easy, but all these, you know, all these things took so much time. Of course, now in retrospect, it all just happened, but we had a really hard time, Amanda and I, raising the money. We lost the money a couple times and then we were really lucky and Maven Pictures financed the film. And there were two things Amanda asked for. One was that Julie has a career. So she's a children's book author in the film. The other is that I don't direct the film, but but then ultimately I, I got to direct it. So no way. So you yeah. directed it and wrote the screenplay. Yes. Wow. And I, and I drew the illustrations, but this novel was the hardest for me because I didn't know what I was doing. And I think I was doing it more for myself to find a place to put the sadness inside of me because I didn't understand when I loved my little baby so much and I loved my kids so much, how I could also be so sad. And I thought it was important, even though the word, it's not an autobiographical book. And now, okay. and when is the movie, when did, like, what are the dates and what is the, you know, the where movie is it? Com- the movie comes out at the end of October. Sony Pictures is release- releasing it. Oh, I learned the term autofiction this week. Oh. And I guess it's a debate now is, you know, can fiction be autofiction? And this book isn't an autobiography or autofiction, but the feelings in it are my own. So I think a lot of women feel those feelings. So I'm glad that the book is there because the book is more internal. So you can understand her in a different way than in the movie. Yeah, that's why I was sort of wondering as I read it, knowing that it's going to be a movie, how this, like, I can see all the scenes unfolding, but so much of it is what's going on with her and like the private, you know, the, those moments and the thoughts and her instincts and her questioning herself and all of which is so common, right. With mothers, you know, I'm really curious to see how that is, how you tackled that on the screen. It's all Amanda's performance. She does it all with her eyes and it's incredible. And it's like, when you watch her, it's, the, it's like she understands the collective fear and joy that all of us have and is you know, able to project that onto the screen. And there are moments where the baby's crying and we all understand that fear of like the baby crying. You're looking at the baby and you just don't know what to do. And you have another kid and the other kid's running. And what happens if something happens to that? You know, it's no one tells you how scary it is to become a mom and how ill-equipped you are in many ways to you're responsible for a whole other life and that can be very scary it plays out all on her face she's she actually I'm very excited for people to see her performance it's 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 a heartbreaking performance it's really good (laughs) I can't wait I'm so excited to see it and I thought maybe I could read like a couple passages that really caught my attention that's okay well, first, there's this whole, let's see if this is it, how Julie is sort of doubting herself and how she won't feel attractive anymore, right? That, which is also, of course, so common. And 
how she's this is in the beginning though i'll read a better passage later but not better your writing is beautiful but that she's in the elevator with philip roth who by the way i was just chatting with somebody who was like yeah philip roth grew up around my parents and i was like oh my gosh have you read a mouthful there because there's a whole scene with philip roth in the elevator and actually anyway and you say but he won't find me attractive not now not as a mother julie feels herself begin to sweat and loosens her scarf this scrap of herself so vain and ugly is what wraps itself around her shoulders at night. Here it is again, waving a finger. Its foreboding voice warns, you are going to fail. You can't help but fail. Oh, this poor girl. <laughs> and then let me read this other passage. Oh, this one was so moving. Oh, my gosh. So, Julie, this is when Teddy has been is born and is nursing and everything. Julie's forefinger traces the lines of his lips. He was so beautiful, her boy. She moved her finger into his mouth. He bit down, his gums hard, how they ached for teeth. What do you want, little guy? The boy reached for his mother's face, and she responded, curling toward him, pressing her lips against his. They were so soft, so minute, so easy to swallow. She slid her tongue into his milky-tasting mouth. Just for a second or two, just long enough to know that she liked it. She couldn't deny it. She was in love with her own son. She was a pervert. Mm-hmm. Tell me about tell me about that passage. Do you even remember writing all this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember writing it. Well, I think that when we all have kids, we come to terms with different I think Julie's coming to terms with feelings and emotions that she's subjugated from her own childhood. And she's confused about the innocent thing of kissing her son versus her fear of what that that means. And is she going to be, you know, a a person who steals innocence? And I think that that's a breaking point for her because the fear of that, of hurting him in any way, she can't kind of let that exist in her head. Wow. Super powerful. Then you go on to, uh, I mean, there's a whole... A whole sort of theme in this book is, is you know, what's okay? Like, is medication for depression okay? Can you do it as a mom? Can you do it when you're nursing? Can you do it when you're pregnant? Like, what are the effects of medication? What does it mean? Should you take it? Should you not? And then there's this one scene where you say there are two doctors, Dr. Saltzman, the gynecologist, who says it's okay, the medicine, that he's had many patients who took antidepressants throughout their pregnancies. Their babies are normal, normal birth weight, normal development. I have at least eight expectant women on antidepressants as we speak. Dr. Salzman talks to Ethan man to man. One out of every seven women experience some degree of depression after they give birth. Those kind, these kinds of statistics are mixed in with how about those nicks? But then there's Dr. Edelman who says she's not, so, she's not sure that there haven't been long enough studies on the newer antidepressants, that they, still, that they are still not even sure what Zoloft does to the brain tissue of the person taking the medication, let alone a fetus. It is possible that antidepressants can mess with the fetus's synapses and the baby can. What does this mean, Ethan interrupts? Anyway, it keeps going on and on about the doctors debating. And still, I feel like people are not even so sure, right? I feel like, you know, I had my first kids 14 years ago and people were like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, it's I like there's a lot of conclusive evidence now that you can take certain antidepressants when pregnant and that there is actually ramifications if you don't on, you know, the baby's development in the fetus. So I do think it's better. I am a very strong proponent of medication. I think it saves lives. And I think, you know, there's a lot of New York magazines or articles about how things are overprescribed. I think for most people in most of the country, most women are suffering in silence and don't really talk about it. They're too scared of 
you know, what their parents might think, what their husband might think, what their, you know, church or temple, the people there might think, you know, there's, there's nowhere to go to say, I'm home alone with my child or I'm at the park with my child and I'm scared all the time. It's like, get a grip and, you know, this is your job. You can't, you know, you can't go work at a bank and be like, I have to leave. I'm anxious. You know, go to the park and stop worrying that, you know, he's going to fall off the, off the slide and die. But, you know, when you get very depressed and, especially if you have bad postpartum depression, you know, those fears become as real to you as what's real. It's like just very hard to decipher between those two things. So I think taking medication and being able to be in the present and being able to be there for your children is much more important than, you know, (laughs) than not taking it because you're worried that a tiny bit is going to pass through the brain tissues, tissue. And we do have more conclusive evidence. 18 years ago or 20 years ago, I had never been on antidepressants. And then I had my son and I had bad depression, but I thought it was just like more or less a version of the same theme. And then I went on antidepressants and everything changed. And like all the cliches happened. Everything went from black and white to color. And, you know, I could feel feelings without being crippled by them. I could cry without being scared that if I started to cry, I would never be able to stop. And then I got pregnant with my daughter and I went off the antidepressant medication and it was it was excruciatingly hard because I was able to see the difference and, and I felt so sick. And I remember like she has crossed eyes. I mean, she doesn't anymore. She had surgery to fix them, but my brother has crossed eyes and she would have had crust eyes it wouldn't have been from the antidepressants but I remember thinking like thank god I didn't take the antidepressants I would have thought that it was that I crossed her eyes but you know I we all want to protect our kids and we do so many things to try to protect them but I think the thing that's most important is for the kid to have their mother so yes I do think there's still a debate about medication but I think overall you know there's enough statistics to say this is better and it, I've worked for a long time with Dr. Lee Cohn, who runs maternal mental health at Mass General. And, you know, there's a lot of places, Postpartum Support International, that you can call and they'll help you and they'll find you somebody, you know, to talk to. So you're, you don't have to be alone. And I remember when writing it and when writing those scenes thinking, if I can somehow figure out to put this all together into a book, if I can somehow figure out how to get the sentences to link so there's, you know, some kind of narrative, maybe it could be a cautionary tale and help people. That was my goal. I mean, nothing ruins fiction than having an agenda, but (laughs) that was my goal. Well, I think it's a great goal. I mean, I feel like wanting to help other people and connecting and using your experience and your emotions to make other people feel less alone. Isn't that why so many people write and why we talk and why we help each other, right? I mean, that's yeah. the basis of our connections anyway. So I don't think that's going to ruin fiction. I mean, <laughs> I think that- no but, I mean, no, but I'm saying like, you know, then you become very didactic in the writing, you know, uh, where you're, you're being prescriptive. And that's all I meant, meant yeah. by that. You know, you don't, you're not supposed to have like a bigger agenda, but my agenda always in the writing is to try to say, to get as close to the truth as possible, even if it's ugly, so that somebody else knows 
that other people are having those feelings. Because for me, when you read and you're able to read a sentence where somebody wrote something that you've been feeling or thinking and or, or wondering about, but never even knew to put into a question and they solve it for you on the page and you have that connection, it changes everything. It makes you know that you're not alone and you're not crazy. I just wrote this piece. My kids just left for two weeks to spend with their dad. I'm divorced and remarried. And it like literally knocked me off my feet. I, I had to spend the whole day like in bed crying. I couldn't even open my eyes. I was so depressed and upset and I like couldn't get it together again. Now it's two days later and I'm like, you know, back doing work and I'm okay. But like, I felt like nobody really understood that pain quite enough. Right. And you know, oh, you know, nobody's sick. You know, your kids are fine. Like, they'll be home soon. Yeah. Anyway, I just wrote about like this very painful sort of essay about it because I was like, let's just name it. Let's name divorce pain. Let's just get it out there and like help your friends who are going through it. Maybe they don't understand. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Anyway. That's a really brilliant thing. That is a specific kind of pain that isn't. And, you know, I, I have a close friend who went through a terrible divorce and yeah, it's, you're getting punished. It just feels like a giant punishment. And that time that should be your time is getting stolen from you. And it just doesn't, it doesn't, it, it, it's devastating. I'm sorry that that happened to you. No, no, it's been like, it's been almost six years. I can't believe it's just, it's okay. It's just, I knew that like other people, I've, you know, after all this time and talking to so many people, I've decided there's nothing I can feel that other people out there aren't going through. Like I'm feeling it. It just means that like hundreds of other people are feeling the same thing. But like my task is just to get it down on paper so that people who might not know what they're feeling sort of have it in front of them and can be like oh right and I feel like that's like what you're doing with this book and you know obviously much better than my one little article but like that that there are things that women and it doesn't have to be auto it doesn't have to be memoir or essay right fiction is the most powerful you you immerse yourself in this poor woman Julie you know and even by the way I felt so bad for her husband Ethan you know I mean I feel like he was trying and like I don't know well the collateral damage I did I did think a lot about that I mean I tried to make it where money wasn't an issue for her because I wanted to give her every resource possible and not have her have a mean husband. And she, and she still couldn't figure it out. 
But for people who are living with depressed people or people who've tried to kill themselves, you are put in kind of an emotional jail. And I actually have that more in the movie. I really think about that. I try to show that how he's kind of trapped because he doesn't, he doesn't know what to do. And I think, I mean, not to be gender specific, but I do think that men do have a hard time anyway when a newborn comes along, like, you know, a lot of times figuring out, you know, where their place is, what their role is and stuff. Maybe not the young men now, because like my son's age or daughters, they all seem like millennial men seem very comfortable with the idea of, oh, you know, but for me, I think that at least in my generation, I think it was hard, hard for men to figure out what their place was. And for Ethan in particular, he has no idea where he fits into any of it. And there's nothing he can do to help her. It's a really hard feeling to manage being with anybody who's depressed for any reason. You know, I mean, it's tough to know how to handle it the best way and to support the people you love. And yeah, you're not allowed to get angry. And like, And that's not fair. Like you have to subjugate all your own emotions and desires. And I do try to show that more in the movie because it, it's not fair to do that to another person. And I think that Julie feels guilty about it and both in the book and the movie, but nevertheless, like the collateral damage that you create by staying depressed or by trying to kill yourself or by killing yourself, you know, it, it, it trickles down for generations. So Ugh, my, so my little one, I have four kids and my eight-year-old, I don't even know where she heard about suicide, but all of a sudden she, she's like, you know, she must've heard on YouTube or something, but she thinks it's called commit to suicide, you know? And she's like, oh, well, do you think that's going to want to make that woman commit to suicide? And it's like the, the sweetest, most heartbreaking way to say it, because you are actually committing to it and you're committing it. Right. It's like, anyway, I don't know. It's just made me think about the whole thing. Right. Like, are you committing to the idea of it or anyway? Oh yeah. But, that's very kids. That's a very profound, tiny change of right. Words are fascinating. Words are fascinating. Well, Amy, what are you, are you working on anything new now? I'm like loving your writing style. And now I'm like such a fan. What are you doing next? I'm working on a new novel called sex with Kings. And it's about a family in the South Bronx. It's a different kind of novel. For me, I'm trying to do a novel where I know certain things that are happening and it's not all internal, but, you know, it'll take me around eight to 10 years to write and it'll end up being, I'll think I'm writing about, you know, this family moving from the South Bronx and moving back and it'll end up being about like menopause. Because, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, then I'm going to have to go to Eric and Eliza at $2 Radio and be like, look, I know that I said I was writing this amazing, sweeping saga about a family. It's really a lot about menopause, but, and, you know, hopefully they'll publish it. Um, (laughs) But that's what I'm, I'm working on and figuring out how to get my last novel made into a movie. So I'm banging on doors, (laughs) which knocking on doors, banging on them. Yeah. (laughs) It's like the door in your, uh, you know, if the store interested, maybe it's a sign, you know, it's perfect. Yeah. Well, do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Oh, I'm happy to answer questions. Yes, I have lots of advice. I think that there's this big misnomer that there are writers and not writers. And I think if you can speak and you can tell a story, you know, as you do, like, 
with your friend, you know, on the phone, or when you go to Starbucks and you're having coffee, you're telling a story. And that's what writing is. It's just telling a story. And so I don't like this uh, idea of, you know, you have to be schooled in it or you have to read books about it. I think the best thing to do if you want to write is just write and write for yourself, especially because no, are you allowed to curse on Instagram? No, let's not. Okay. No one reads fiction really anyway, right? Like if there's a, it's a small amount of people that are looking to read literary fiction. So you have time and you only have your first book once. And so just write the story you want to tell as truthfully as you can, and it will find its readers and write it first and foremost for yourself. And if you're able to write it for yourself and, and well, this sounds weird, but write it for the characters so that you can make their truth real. There's a lot of satisfaction in that. And it makes you be able to feel more whole and it makes you be able to withstand the rejection after rejection. I mean, this book had to have been rejected. This book was rejected by every single agent in New York City. I finally got an agent in San Francisco at the time. And, you know, there was no email. So everything was a self-addressed stamped envelope. And like, you know, every time they would just come back and you know that the, the non-rejection isn't going to come back in an envelope. They're going to, you know, call you. But the rejections don't matter. All that matters is that there will be somebody out there that will understand and will publish it. And now you can self-publish things. And that's an am- amazing thing because I read in a, a book that, blew me away. That was a self-published book. I was, I was going through Amazon looking for a subject and I saw this book and I ordered it and I was like, wow, that's incredible. And you know, she, she had been rejected by everybody. You can't be dissuaded by the gatekeepers. Okay. Last question came in from the chat and then I'll let you go. But someone is wondering if you could describe the space in which you wrote this book, the physical space, like, was it a desk where, where were you? Oh, I wrote this book mostly in a closet (laughs) because I, you know, lived in an apartment. I had kids if they were sleeping, you know, and so there was a closet like right by the front door when you walked in. And if I went into the closet, it was it was easy because (laughs) there was no distraction and I could hear if a baby was crying. I could hear if somebody was trying to get in through the front door. So that's that's where I wrote it. I wrote a lot of it by hand and then I got a laptop. I had a typewriter first. Oh, uh, sorry. Last question. What's the name of the book that you just said blew you away that was self-published? Do you remember? Yeah, it was called The Dragon's Daughter. And it's about a girl who grows up in the KK with a father who's like a leader of the KKK. And it's a great book. And she's a great writer. Sharon Honeycutt is her name. Excellent. So, okay. Jilly is asking, who are your favorite or what are your favorite books or who are some of your favorite authors? Oh, my favorite author is Per Pedersen. He's a Norwegian author. He has this book called I Curse the River of Time. That stupid book made it impossible for me to finish my last novel because I was like, if I could just write a book one twentieth as good as Per Pedersen's book. And so, you know, I kept starting over because I couldn't touch Per Pedersen as a writer. I actually got to meet him at the public library. He came and he spoke and my husband took a picture of it, but I told him, I said, you know, I mean, at a certain point, I thought like, maybe if I just started eating the pages of the book, like one by one, I'd be able to somehow, you know, by, you know, osmosis, 
be able to write like you. And my husband said his whole body just like went like that, like what a freak. But I was crying and I thanked him because he writes a lot about death and losing the people that we love. And he just, he is my favorite writer, favorite living writer. And his books aren't hard either. Like he doesn't have a lot of affect or pretense. He doesn't make you feel inferior. He just writes very simply the truth. And then it's like you ha- you ha- you get to make a friend when oh, you're, yeah. I love Patterson. Well, Amy, thank you so much. Thanks for coming yeah. on to discuss A Mouthful of Air. We'll all be looking to watch your movie in October. I can't wait for that. And thanks for coming on. And I hope your first interview in 18 yeah. years wasn't too bad. So. I hope I made sense. I was like, shoot, I did not answer that first question. Yes, you did. You did it all great. Okay. There's no right answer. This is your story. So okay. thank uh, you. someone's saying you realize how many women you're inspiring right now. So there you go. Thank you. Thank right. you. Thanks, Amy. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 